Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Simran. Welcome to Women Who. Women Who is a podcast of conversations with women who challenge the status quo. Gal Gadot in the house, <laughs> a.k.a. Marissa Sternstein, is here. I think before we get into the conversation, and Marissa, we're really excited to um, to have you here before we start hitting you with some questions. Uh, really quickly, I'm going to do a quick introduction on who Marissa is and what she means to us here at Dentsu. Uh, so she serves as the Associate General Counsel of Dentsu International. In her current role, she focuses on employment law and creating the strategies, policies, and practice that foster Dentsu's diverse and inclusive culture. Boy, do we have some really interesting questions to dig into that a little deeper. Uh, She also serves as the global strategic advisor to the company on other key issues, including future work, executive compensation, and pay equity. And she's an integral part of the team that drives meaningful progress in Densu's DE&I and social impact agenda, where we recently received a score of 100 on the Human Rights Campaign Foundation's 2022 Corporate Equality Index. And that's the nation's foremost benchmarking service and report measuring corporate policies and practices related to LGBTQ plus workplace equality And it was one of the first companies in the world to have its net zero target validated by the globally recognized science-based target initiatives. Most importantly, Marissa uh, lives in New Jersey with her husband, and she has three young daughters, mini superwomen in the making. Welcome, Marissa. Welcome. Thank you so much, Simran Kate. Such a pleasure to be here and uh, appreciate... uh, being compared to Superwoman or Gal Gadot and having my children being referred to as little Superwomen. That's exciting. And I'm sure they'd love it. Put those capes on, ladies. Put those capes on. Um, I also, I omitted this part of your biography and I feel like we need to go for coffee after the fact because I have so many questions on your master's degree in museum studies from Syracuse. That sounds pretty cool. So I, I will talk a little bit about that, actually. Um, so we, we could always get coffee later, but I'm happy to touch upon that in our conversation. Fantastic. All right. So we always sort of start this off, and, and maybe this is where you'll get into it, too, around your journey, areas of passion. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Marissa. So I am a lawyer by training, as you mentioned. And yes, I was totally that kid who in eighth grade in my yearbook put that I wanted to be a lawyer when I grew up. Now, I have no idea why, you know, 12 or 13 year old me knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. My dad was a dentist. Um, My mom was a teacher. And something that I heard about the law clearly sounded cool and interesting to me and like something I wanted to do. Now, although that sounds like it could be um, pretty straightforward <laughs> at, at this point, there are a lot of twists and turns along the way as to how I actually got into employment law in particular and where I am. So growing up, I was always the kid that loved to be a part of a, a team. I played a lot of sports. I was actively involved in the Girl Scouts. I actually wrote a column in my high school paper about our high school sports teams where I got to interview other kids and tell their stories about their successes, about 
wins and losses and connecting with my peers and telling their stories was something I was always very passionate about. So I did go to Syracuse. Uh, The plan was still to be pre-law and go to law school. And I took an art history class and I was totally fascinated. And what I was fascinated by was you could look at a piece of art and you could learn about it and you could learn so many different things about what was happening in the world with society, with history. Um, You could learn about different political movements. You could learn about the artists themselves and artists and creative types are very um, usually colorful and interesting people. And I, I loved all of that. So I ended up picking up art history as a second major. And I remember feeling very torn. Should I pursue this newfound love of art? Should I continue with going to law school, as was the plan? And I did work for several years in the art world. I worked at uh, the Guggenheim. I worked at Gagosian and other uh, contemporary art galleries. And although I, I really loved those experiences, the, the art world was much more, you know, commercially driven in nature. And what I loved about art was much more the people, their stories, and, you know, how, what this said about, like, the larger world and, and movements happening. So I ended up going to law school. I thought I was going to do art law at the time. Um, I did discover that art law was very similar to the commercial art world, you know, more transactional, more about contracts and IP, all of which are interesting, but not necessarily why I love art and still love art to this day. So I ended up having a uh, internship or, or a job, you know, my second year in law school where I worked at a big firm. And I also felt very removed while I was there. I really wanted to, I'm someone that likes to hold their feet to the fire, to be in the room with the client, to be in front of the judge, to really push myself into uncomfortable situations. That's really how I grow. So after my uh, second year of law school, I started looking for a job at a small firm because I thought that would give me the opportunity to actually get that hands-on experience. So I ended up accepting a job with two of my professors who taught employment law Um, and had an employment law firm. And employment law was just such a perfect fit for me. And it totally caught me by surprise, but it's all about people and relationships and their stories. And it's all about how the law evolves over time to reflect what's happening in society. So it really was a perfect fit. And there I definitely got that, you know, hit the ground running, feet to the fire. I was in front of judges. I was negotiating employment agreements. I was dealing with clients directly and and giving advice. And it was a tremendous growth opportunity. So I was there for seven years at that firm. And I ended up ultimately making the switch to in-house law because I felt like a lot of times I was getting involved in things when it was almost too late. People were coming to me with specific problems that needed to be solved. And I really wanted to be involved in the ground level to help to make decisions and and build things that make workplaces better, right? People spend a lot of time at work, um, who they are at work and how they feel at work has a big impact on their lives. And being able to impact the people um, as they go to work each day felt very powerful and fulfilling to me. So I did move in-house to Dentsu. I've been here for five years. Um, It's been a truly uh, I, I will say fulfilling experience to be a part of all of these initiatives and help to deliver value for our people uh, in such a way and practice law in, in such an interesting and dynamic way. So um, that's been great. So that's where I am now. I'm an in-house employment lawyer, as you mentioned, and that's an important part of who I am, right? I spend a lot of time at work 
uh, it's, it's important for you. Know, I'm friends with a lot of people I work with. I really have gotten a lot of value from that in so many different ways. But who I am is not just what I do. So I, I identify in a lot of other ways. I wear a lot of other hats. So I'm a wife and a mother, as you mentioned. I have three small daughters that keep me quite busy. Um, and I also have this identity as being an observant Jew and being part of the Orthodox Jewish community. And these two things are things that are extremely important to me and are things that I think help me to show up every day as myself and deliver who I am, you know, in my full capacity and something that has really enriched my life in such a meaningful way. See, I wasn't wrong when I said Wonder Woman. This is the evidence right there. Marissa, thank you so much for, for sharing that. I, the first thing that comes to mind is, would you, would you go back and make a different choice? Like if you, if I could give you a time machine and you knew what you knew today, would you choose art instead Definitely of law? Definitely not. Definitely not. I, I, I think, again, employment law is such a, it's such a dynamic area. It's constantly changing and you really get to impact people. Um, you get to impact people's lives. And you know, I'm happy to talk about some of the things I've worked on um, at Dentsu, but just building a culture, building a community, these are things that are things that outlast me, that are bigger than me. Um, it's not just about a single transaction or a single, you know, a single instance. It, it's about building something that has a rippling effect, right? Because when people are happy at work, when people are feeling fulfilled at work, that trickles into communities, that trickles into their families, that impacts the decisions that they make and how they give back and contribute. And that is extremely powerful. So I, I think that the benefits that I get every day from doing what I do is far beyond anything that I could have gotten personally out of being involved in the art world. And like, how do you think it translates? Like when you start to think about specifically how employment law affects women in the workplace, and I'm using that language broadly, like are there things that come to mind that you've seen over your career or even that are just of the moment right now that you think either women can be more informed about, more vocal about, like, are there sort of key, you know, tentpole topics that you're like, this should be top of mind if you're a woman at work that's looking to ascend in her career or just do really well where she is right it, now? It's a good question because we're, we're at such a, an interesting point, I think, a, an interesting snapshot in time on, on the tail end, hopefully. Of a, of a global pandemic. And in light of this great resignation where people are, you know, if they're not happy, they're leaving. They're not sticking around to, to see if things improve. And on the flip side of that, it's also an amazing opportunity for employers to attract talent and set themselves apart. Uh, so I, I think for, for women, as I see it, I think women are generally informed about what their basic employment rights are. They have a basic sense of what fairness is and, and what fairness means to them and a good working environment means to them. I think what I'd say about being more informed and vocal about is what the actual employment law um, and, and benefits situation is in your particular company or community, right? And this is going to change based on the country you're in, the market you're in, and things like that. But employers have a real um, opportunity, and I think they've been taking advantage of it. Certainly, I feel like at Dentsu, we're taking advantage of it, but to help to build the culture and make people feel valued through what our policies are and the benefits that are offered. So a good example, I think, is the parental leave policy in the U.S. that I'll just 
highlight. Um, so the U.S. is a bit of an outlier. I know I'm speaking to two women that are in Canada, so I, I'm sure this resonates with you. But in the U.S., there is no federally mandated paid parental leave. It just it doesn't exist. You have some iterations of these on local levels, but there's no standard across the board. And it's really in the private sector where employers have taken it upon themselves to offer these kind of leave policies to be attractive and support employees and give this kind of equality of opportunity that would allow people to have families to be fully paid, spend time with their families, and then come back to work. So at Densu back in 2017 in the U.S., we had, I think it was a six-week parental leave policy, meaning you'd only be paid for six weeks of time. And that is just totally crazy, in my opinion, you know? It's not, it's not enough. I mean, I'm not a mother, but I feel like it's, 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 it's not, not enough. enough. And, and it, it also sends, in addition to it just not being enough, it sends a message that this is something that is not valued and appreciated. And that six weeks was also just for women, right? So men wouldn't take the six weeks because they didn't have it. And that also builds a, a bigger divide, right? If we talk about division of responsibility, if we talk about valuing, you know, different roles um, within the parental relationship. It, it was just a very outdated policy. And, and what we did was we increased it to 16 weeks, fully paid, gender neutral, you know, men and women. And there were some legal arguments for that, you know, that it should be gender neutral and things like that. And I was happy to be able to leverage um, some of the legal arguments there. But it really was about what are we trying to build here and do here and encourage? and knowing that these policies are available um, as a woman and taking advantage of these policies and supporting our colleagues that might take advantage of these policies, I think is really critical. And if you see something that's not there for whatever reason, and you hear of other companies doing it, or you think it's something that could help add to the culture, to speak up. Because I think um, we're incredibly fortunate to have leaders um, at the top and frankly, in every area of the organization that are really committed to building this inclusive environment where people can show up and feel supported. So if you don't see something, ask for it. I mean, the worst the worst that could happen is it's not there. Um, and then you've already planted the seed, right, for other people to start thinking about what our people's needs are and how we can best support them. Yeah, you. It, I mean, you raise so many points. It's it's almost like when you're when you're looking at a a company to see if it's suitable, pay is just one sort of micro part of it, right? You really have to look at the whole, the entire reward package, and a large part of that is the benefits and the perks and what sort of days do I have? And I know there's been a very conscious effort even in Dentsu around: are they sick days? Are they now wellness days? There's different ways you can be. Um, feeling unwell, right? And so this is, it's really interesting to see, you're right, Marissa, there's been such, there's been some steady streams and some great progress, but really recently you've started to see a a really great evolution of a lot of these uh, policies too. And I think a lot of that stems from the top. Um, You know, that's a lot of it about what's happening in the market, but a lot of that stems from the top. I mean, we have two truly amazing female leaders, right, as as our global CEO, as our America's CEO, and they're real people. Um, They're people with families and interests and and other things that they do outside of work, and they've been very clear that they support our people, and I truly believe that that's not lip service because I feel like we see it day in and day out. So all of those things, I think, 
could lead to some really um, remarkable and, you know, an acceleration of progress as to where we've been. I love that you mentioned inclusivity as well. I I feel like historically people have always been um, encouraged to separate, you know, their personal life from their professional life, that there shouldn't be crossover. Somehow there's, you know, shame if your personal life affects you professionally. And that's the, it's very inhuman in its thinking. Yeah. If we're able to change, you know, the way we show up when it comes to very simple constructs, in my opinion, around parental leave, we're creating an open, more open experiences for all individuals, regardless of how they identify in terms of gender. And I love that you called out our, our CEOs who identify as women, because that representation, that diversity of thought is then what can enable that change to happen. And I think it's it's sometimes these these moments, these changes happen behind the scenes and it takes a bit of time before it, you know, enters the day-to-day discourse. But then once it does, we recognize that, yeah, of course, I'm a human. I'm gonna have a personal life, a professional life. They're actually not disconnected. And if employers can look at it from that perspective and create that inclusivity from a legal standpoint, then then it, I think it creates probably a lot more comfort for individuals that might not feel as courageous, you know, talking about topics that feel that could feel taboo. I agree. So let's get into a couple others, um, because I I think the two that, you know, come up to my mind in terms of subject matter areas, discrimination, pay equity, Kate, you touched on pay a little bit. Do you see anything that's emerging within these spaces that, you know, we could, we could touch on areas that, you know, might be you know, inducing of hope for those that still might feel discouraged uh, around, you know, the gender pay gap or, you know, again, gender discrimination. A lot of the data that we look at in the market still shows, you know, a significant disparity in both of these categories. What are you seeing from a legal perspective? What are you sort of buoyed by? So so there has been a lot of movement um, globally, I'll just say, you know, not, not just in the U.S., not just in Canada, but to, to try and help foster gender equity. Um, these laws have been on the books for a long time. The, you know, we can't discriminate on the basis of sex or, you know, other protected categories that people should be in general, you know, broad strokes, paid equal, pay for equal work. But, but what does that mean, right? On, on a, on a practical level. And I think, as we talked about the, the pressure on employers and making sure that you're working for a company, right. That values these things and has practices and policies that help to, get rid of any opportunity gaps or other gaps that might exist. That's certainly a part of it. But from the legal perspective, what we've seen the law do over the past few years is really try to be more expansive. So in the discrimination context, uh, what we've seen, and this is globally, but certainly, you know, I'll highlight some of the U.S. um, specifics too, but just calling out more specifically the different areas of discrimination that might exist. So uh, there was a big uh, Supreme Court case back in 2020 that specifically said sexual identity is a covered category from the federal discrimination laws. For a long time, there was a lot of debate about that because the law said, you know, you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. And what does that mean? What did they intend at the time? You know, should that be expanded? So there's been a more expansive, I think, read of what the discrimination laws say as far as who is covered from discrimination. Um, And on the local levels, I think there's also been a push to expand um, who is discovered from, uh, who is uh, covered rather under the discrimination laws to try and address some of the 
root cause of discrimination, hair discrimination, you know, more subtle, nuanced forms of discrimination that still have a real tangible impact. So we've seen that on the discrimination front. In the, in the pay equity front, I think we're also seeing similar movements. And again, this is, this is globally, um, but the, the movements to, to get at the root cause, again, of these, of these gaps that exist that, that you've highlighted that have been proven day in and day out with, with research. So one thing that has come up is uh, salary history bans. So when candidates are looking for a new job, um, employers cannot ask, oh, well, what are you making at your current job? And the thought is that if you rely on what someone's making at their current job, then any inequities that exist will just continue um, throughout time, right? Because it's ultimately an economic decision. If an employer could pay someone a bit less than what that seat is worth, you know, that's of interest to them just from a sheer economic standpoint. So getting rid of things like that I think are going to end up having a, a tangible impact on the numbers. That said, it's ultimately up to every employer, right? About how, what practices they implement, how they continue to maintain it and, you know, have discussions about pay. And I think that there is going to be a lot of pressure on employers in the coming years to make sure that they stay ahead of these trends and that they're still actively working to create, again, that equality of opportunity within their organizations. So interesting. <laughs> now, now it makes me wish I had gone to law school. Employment law is so interesting. Like all of the, the nuances and the work that you and the team have been doing, like, I feel like there's so many people at Dentsu who just don't understand that the the constant work that's that goes on, all of the reading that you do, the precedent that's set in other countries. And because we are a global company, you really do have to pay attention to what's going on in the other markets. I guess it would be slightly different if we were just regionally, regionally based in North America versus globally too, right? I think it would be, but even in a region, I mean, if you look at U.S. and Canada and Latin America, I mean, the, the laws are very different. And I think creating a consistent um, employer brand and a consistent um, just messaging and culture, like the way to the way to do that is to have your people feel good about what they're doing. Right. And that's obviously going to be changing by region, but people feel valued when they feel like they have a company that's supporting them. And the way to do that, obviously, is through good leadership, but also the policies and making sure that you're following the law. I mean, that's just a bare minimum. All right. Next up. Um, and I mean, you mentioned this in the beginning around your journey, uh, but uh, you talk about you have many layered elements um, of your identity, including a mom, uh, but also importantly, an observant Jew. And so our question, we always love asking this is, has it been difficult to show up as your whole self at work? How have you tapped into the vulnerability? What what has it been like? So, I mean, the, the short answer is yes. I, I think it, it's, it's, always, it's always hard to show up as your real self, right? Because I think part of it is, I think we're all still discovering who our real selves are. And every day, you know, we're put in different situations where we're forced to, to think about how we actually feel about things. And we're all so busy and moving a million miles an hour that we don't always have that, that luxury of thought, right. And, and quiet reflection um, to think about those things. But, you know, I talked about my identity, um, you know, as a wife, as a mother, as, you know, part of the 
Orthodox Jewish community. And a lot of those, those decisions are things where it really is potentially directly clashing with my ability to be available, to be present, and to show up every day and deliver. Um, and what I mean by that is if there's an urgent issue or meeting or something that needs to happen and it happens to be on a Jewish holiday or on Shabbat, I'm not going to be there, period. Um, and, and that's that's uncomfortable, frankly, for me, because I'm someone that takes my job extremely seriously. I don't want anyone to think that I'm not committed to, to my work. I don't want to leave. You know, I'm a big team player. I don't want to leave anyone out to dry if they need me or I could add value. So that's that's always been a struggle for me. And, and same with my children, right? If there's something that I need to be there for, if I have a, a sick child or an event at my kid's school, that, that will take priority. Um, and, and knowing that I can't be in two places at once. So what I think I've, I've discovered over time is there's really two ways of approaching this, right? You could take the first way, which is you know, embarrassment, shame, feeling torn and pulled in two directions, trying to do two things, you know, not so well, trying to half show up for your family and half show up for work. So that's one option. And from my experience, that's extremely exhausting and not sustainable. Or you could just own it. You know, you could be very clear. This is who I am. This is what I do and actually try to embrace it. So I do feel, and I, I really believe this, that being um, part of the Orthodox Jewish community, that being part of, of a family unit that that is so, um, you know, active and, and growing is something that makes me better at my job and a better person and a better colleague and friend and manager and allows me to, you know, I, I do all this work for our, our company about culture building and, and inclusivity, you know, that, that allows me to just have a broader perspective um, so embracing those parts of me and realizing that those parts are actually critical to how I show up every day. Um, and for me, that's been a driving force. I also, you know, I have three young children, as you said, I actually have a fourth on the way, which is super exciting. I'm going to say 90% exciting. We'll say 10% terrifying, but we're going to stick with exciting. But, you know, I, I have, I have people that are looking at me, right. Um, and I want to set a positive example. Sure. They're young now, but um, if they see, you know, mommy's working all the time and, and she's stressed and upset and uh, doesn't make time for us, that, that doesn't send a positive message about what work can be. And, and work, from my opinion, is something that should be fulfilling. It should be invigorating. Um, certainly, you should uh, feel valued and be able to make a living and support the life that you want to have. But at, at the end of the day, it, it is something that should be a net positive. I just had like a profound moment because at the at the beginning of that amazing answer, Marissa, you said, you know, we're we're all learning who we are every day. And you were talking about identity. And there's I think for me, there's this interesting I'm gonna try and summarize it. It's that like identity is not really a destination. You know, it is this ever evolving thing. And I think when we lean into that, it takes a lot of the pressure off. Like it takes the weight off of I need to know exactly every aspect of who I am today and who I'm going to be tomorrow and where I want to get to a year from now. And instead, what I hear from you is that your mindset really dictates more than any of like the identifiers that you've listed, how you want to show up. The mindset that you, I think you create to prioritize what's important for you. And priorities, I think, have come up 
far more frequently than I anticipated in a lot of our conversations. We have a number of women that ask, like, how do you set priorities? And then how do you stick to them? And so I'm going to repeat it back to you and let me know if I've interpreted correctly. It feels like to me, you really approach it with a mindset that allows, you know, your life dynamic to change. But the things that are most important to you and the order in which they exist in your life don't. I, I think I think that's exactly right. Listeners also um, appreciated it too. And you know, one thing I'll, I'll just call out is we're so bombarded with things and external, you know, stimuli every day. You know, our our Teams chats, our emails, um, you know, w- watching TV and just consuming outside things. Just carving out time to to take a minute and reflect, and and not being afraid, right? If someone asks you a question or asks you to do something, if you need time to think about it, just say, huh, you know, I need some time to think about it. There's no shame in that. And I think the more that we all do that, the better we'll all be served because we'll all be making decisions that are more in touch, I think, with who we want to be and where we want to go. I think like with that, what do you do when it gets too much? Like what do you, there's, there's so many things that are important. There's, there's uh, certain elements that have priority over others. Are there like specific tactics that maybe you employ when it is overwhelming, when everything's coming at you at once, like you just said, that help you recenter, help you come back to that stasis and mindset where you're like, okay, I, I can, I can move through this really stressful or difficult time. So it's funny that you asked that Simran, cause I I've spent a lot of time probably in the past two years, like trying to find some kind of a hack for it, like listening. <laughs> Obviously to, me too, since uh, I'm asking the question. <laughs> right, of course. Right. Like some productivity hack about like, oh, if I break up my hour and only have 45 minute meetings and I'll have yeah. 15 minutes to go for a walk and I'll feel totally refreshed. So, you know, n- none of that stuff, frankly, has, has worked for me, or at least I haven't found one where I was like, ah, I've got it. This is it. Now I've I figured it all out, you know, and I've, I've tried a ton of things. I have this, um, I'll show it on the, on the video, but I know our listeners can't see it, but I have like a productivity cube where it's like, Oh, if I focus, you know, for 20 minutes on this task, then I'll be able to just check it off the list. So I I've, I've tried it all. Um, and, and I don't think there's a one size fits all approach. What, what I've come to are a few kind of universal truths mm. of, of, uh, balancing it all. And one is, uh, you far overestimate the amount that you can do in a day, period. So um, it's like the old, you know, my eyes are bigger than my stomach when you eat that expression. It's like, I think I can do it all in my head and I love to say yes. So someone will ask me, on any little task, it seems so reasonable in the moment, right? And you're looking at someone and you really like that person, you want to help them. So of course, yes, of course I'll do it, right? And then what ends up happening is you have just way too much on your plate. So what I've tried to do is just, unfortunately come from a default of no and make myself explain why the answer is yes. Um, And that's been a really hard mindset for me because of all those reasons I just mentioned, you know, I'm an achiever. I like to make things better, but I actually, you know, have found that people really understand when you start explaining to them, like what you're trying to do or the other priorities you have on your plate. um, And you end up doing better work and just approaching it with more clarity and precision. So, so that's one thing I've tried. And and now that I've said out loud, that does sound like kind of a productivity hack. So I'm aware of the, uh, the, um, you know, uh, contradiction there, but, um, 
so doing that, but also trying to like carve out time in your day um, for the things that rejuvenate you. I, I love taking walks. I live in a, a beautiful town in New Jersey that has a lot of hills and it's so beautiful this time of year in spring. Um, and, and just walking around and either listening to a podcast, listening to nothing, mm-hmm. um, calling, you know, calling a friend, calling my mom, you know, these kind of things that just kind of let my brain decompress a bit. Those are also helpful in just recentering myself um, and being vocal about it. I mean, I'm so lucky. I have an amazing, amazing manager um, and leaders on the legal and compliance team where you could say like, oh, geez, I feel like I'm under a waterfall right now. Like, is there anything I can do to help make that better? And there's no judgment for that. Um, There's only people willing to roll up their sleeves and help you. So creating those spaces is also really important. I, I accept your productivity hack. I can, it can be like the 10, the 10 tips of productivity hacks by Marissa. But, okay, so I'm <laughs> going to add to some of your productivity hacks that you mentioned before too, because I think there was almost something liberating when you just admit to yourself sometimes first and then to other people like, this is, this is who I am. This is all of my various identities. And then it really sounds like too, another almost hack of yours is just being present in that moment. So if you if you are with your children, it's it's sort of being there and not necessarily on the phone. Or if you are at work, then you're you're at work too, right? Because I think I hear you when when you were saying like you can try and divide yourself up, but then you, a you're never happy because you're always feeling this like oh I'm not really there. I should be. But yeah, so have you found like the just sort of being a little bit more present at each has helped too? C- completely, completely. And ca- and carving out those times, um, having some sort of a schedule makes sense. I, I put my, my husband and I both um, put our daughters to bed every single night. So every night I'm signed off from 6.30 to 8. You can't find me. I won't be on a meeting. I won't respond to a, a chat or a Teams message because that's what I do every single day. And we have a little routine and it's, you know, it's very nice and we read to our girls and, and it's something that we could all look forward to. And I don't shift that time unless, you know, th- there's a very good reason and compelling reason. And either my husband and I, or I try and be there every night. And I think that that creates this sense of stability, not only for my children, but also for us, right? I know that I'm going to have that time with my family and it's not going to be interrupted. And it's it's meaningful time. We could talk about our days. You know, we could talk about anything that might be bothering us. You know, if, if a child's not feeling well or, you know, there, there's something going on. So it's just, it's really special. I love that. What a great example of boundary setting and then and sticking to it. Um, and I think there's been so much more you know, bleeding of working hours of, you know, thinking that we, we need to constantly be attached to our phone or our laptop or meetings, whether, whether the work environment is demanding it or, you know, we're maybe projecting onto the work environment. It sounds like such a simple thing to do. I'm not, I'm not going to be available from 630 to eight. And legitimately many people struggle because there's also, I think, a sense of guilt of, you know, letting your teammates down if you're not immediately accessible or a fear of, of not being around and what's going to happen if you're not available. Have you ever struggled with, you know, th- those emotions sort of creeping in or do you sort of shift it and be like, actually, I look forward to that and that's how I'm going to overcome, you know, the challenge. I'm like, I get to, you know, hang out with my family, my kids at 630 and that's sort of like a, a reward, if you will, at the end of a, a hectic day. 
I definitely try and focus on the reward aspect. Um, I, I will say it's the, the, the guilt doesn't go away, especially if it's something that you believe is actually pressing and important from a work perspective. That's, that's hard. Um, but fortunately, I think those moments are few and far between because what I found is when you say like, actually that's, you know, I put my kids to sleep at that time and propose an alternative time. From my experience, people here have been extremely accommodating. No, no one's looking to ruin your day or disrupt your time with your family or time of things that are important to you. And, and just saying it there again, I, I don't think that there's judgment associated with it. And if it is, I, I frankly don't really care what that person thinks if they are judging me, maybe they are. Um, but, but the only way to try and make this an environment where people can balance all these things is to have those conversations and to speak openly about what our other priorities are. Yeah. And I, I love that because in part it's, it's you setting the boundary and following through. And then the other part of it is having a team and leadership that's supportive. And I think we've had a number of different, you know, instances or examples where the latter is often not the case, you know, where potentially you have a manager or leadership team that doesn't understand or can't empathize. And those can be very difficult conversations. And then you need to sort of look at your environment and say, is this the right place for me to be in the in the life that I want to lead, both at work and both outside of work? And that's, it's tough, but I think it's important because if you start to um, second guess or not follow through on your boundaries, then that's a very clear signal, you know, to the people around you that they can, they can push and prod and get you to do what they want and not necessarily respect what you're looking for out of, out of balance in your, in your work and home life. I agree. And what's particularly challenging is, I mean, we are in a, in a client service industry. I mean, I have internal clients. I'm a lawyer, but I still have clients. Um, but but we have clients that we serve, right, as an organization. And having the leadership backing to have those conversations with clients or a team that will cover you in the event of a client need, I think is really critical. So yes to everything you were saying. I have so many hacks now. <laughs> Adding them to the list. <laughs> Uh oh. Exactly. Marissa told me. Marissa said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Marissa said I could do this. So then the person you're talking is like, what are you going on about? Who's Marissa? It's like, you don't need to know. Just go listen to the podcast and it'll all be explained. Okay. Well, before before we get into our favorite rapid fire, I think in sort of a, a conclusion and a and a looking ahead, it's sort of like, okay, so now what's next? And, and you've said a, a couple of times, you speak about the, uh, the cutting edge of the law. What, what could you sort of leave with our listeners and, and encourage them to uh, read up on, self-educate? Uh, what, would, what would be something you'd love to uh, impart them with? So I think one area that is really um, up and coming and interesting and timely is the use of AI um, artificial intelligence and what that means in the people space, you know, from a hiring perspective, from a recruiting perspective, from a legal and privacy perspective, there's so many interesting things happening there. And there's a lot of evidence that's pointing to AI, um, being a potential source of reducing or eliminating bias in hiring decisions or pay decisions and things like that. So 
I'm following that closely. I'm really interested to see where that ends up um, just from an intellectual perspective. And of course, you know, uh, because it's it's what I do for work. But I think that that's an area that we're going to see a lot of movement so in the next few years. AI into legal. Interesting. Interesting, interesting. They're coming. The robots are coming. I don't know if they are or not. Sorry if that freaked anyone out. <laughs> it's a rapid fire time. It's rapid fire time. I feel like it's rapid fire time. Okay, so rapid fire. This is our favorite segment that we do with everyone we bring on the podcast. We're going to ask you five quick, really hard hitting. That's a joke. I'm being sarcastic. They're actually really lighthearted questions. Um, Marissa, what's your favorite time of day? Definitely the mornings, early morning. I'd say 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. when I could sip tea and get prepared for the day. And it feels like I'm up and the whole world's asleep. And like I, I have a leg morning up. That's, people. That's definitely my favorite. unite. I'm gonna need your, I'm gonna need your becoming a morning person hat. I've been trying because. to convert Simran for a while now. Our listeners will know. Morning people unite. All right. Love the mornings. Uh, when you travel, window or aisle seat? What's the preference? Uh, I think it depends if I'm traveling with, with a family member or someone I know who's on the aisle, I'll probably choose the window. Um, but other than that aisle, I like to have, uh, some, uh, you know, authority to, to move about the cabin at my leisure. I, yes, yes. A thousand times. Yes. Um, what's the best compliment you've ever received? That actually happened very recently. Um, my amazing paralegal is going to law school. I know I made it look way too fun. I should have been more miserable. She would have stayed with me. <laughs> She's incredible. Um, but she um, said something to me before she left that was basically, she she wouldn't have thought that this was all possible for her going to law school and pushing herself in this way if it weren't for me and my encouragement. And that That's amazing. Um, that truly means a lot. I love that. I think my heart just grew a size. That was beautiful. Yeah, she she's amazing. Um, and she's going to be a remarkable lawyer. So the fact that I could have had some small part in her journey means a lot to me. All right, next up, it's Saturday morning. It's 10 a.m. I now know you've probably been up for hours, but we will find you doing what? So t- 10 a.m. is an interesting time. So so we usually do go to to our synagogue on Saturday because it's Shabbat. Um, and that's a really nice time to, to connect with others and, and catch up with our friends and other people in the community. But every Saturday, I have the Wall Street Journal delivered. And I read it. I try and read it cover to cover. And by cover to cover, I mean, you know, skimming and focusing on the articles I, I like to read. Um, but that that's my opportunity to just have a moment um, my, my daughters are actually very, um, friendly with each other and they play well together. So my, my kids get to play with each other. Um, and, uh, you know, if it's nice, they'll go outside. I'll sit outside on, uh, on my uh, back porch and I will read the paper and it's just my moment of relaxation and reconnection. And it feels really good. Okay. Last one. When do you feel most inspired? So I get a ton of energy of working with people. Um, and I love working with people and, and doing all those things. But, but frankly, when I have those moments of solitude and quiet, ideally in nature, whether it's, you know, walking or going on a hike or something like that, that's really when I'm most inspired. Cause I think that's when my brain starts to work overtime and really connect with 
you know, who I am, what I want, interesting ideas that I might've been stuck on for whatever reason, um, it all becomes clear to me. So that's, I think, when I feel most inspired. Thanks so much, Marissa. This has been an excellent conversation. And congratulations. We didn't say congratulations on number four. Yeah, no, super psyched. It's going to be great. Um, So uh, yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I will say the support that I felt from all of um, our coworkers here, in addition to some raised eyebrows, because not everyone has four kids these days, um, has really been amazing. So grateful for all that. Well, we certainly appreciate you and thank you for showing up as your whole self today. I'm, I'm sure our listeners also appreciated it too. Great. Okay. Thanks so much. Women Who is produced by Dentsu International and available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Women Who. And that's spelled at W-O-M-X-N underscore W-H-O. 